Words aren't everything. That's what James said last week. In the second chapter of his letter, he told us it is not enough just to say the right things. If we have a genuine living faith in Jesus, it will affect our actions. Our faith will produce acts of obedience to God. In the example James gave, we will not just say to another person, in need, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. If we have genuine living faith in Jesus, we will go beyond just saying the right thing to that person. We will actually do something about their physical needs. Words aren't everything. Words are no substitute for action. But having made that point, James wants to make sure we don't misunderstand he doesn't want us to make the mistake of thinking words are insignificant. They're hugely significant. And in chapter 3, James confronts us with the fact that words matter. Earlier this morning in our reading from Psalm 19, we saw that God's words matter. And now James wants us to see that our words matter too. He wants us to see how much they matter. Much of chapters 3 and 4 focus on the fact that our words matter, and this morning we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 3. So if you haven't turned there yet, you'll find it in the church Bibles on page 1215, and in the larger print Bibles 1882. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, Reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness 
Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is God's Word. And it's a word from God about our words. Apparently, the average human being speaks between 10,000 and 20,000 words per day. So whether you're closer to a 10,000-a-day person or a 20,000-a-day person, for all of us, words are a big part of our daily activity. And James wants us to see just how much they matter. In verses 1 to 5, he tells us our words are incredibly powerful. But before he makes that point, he starts here with a warning, almost a threat in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That might seem strange. Doesn't the church need teachers? In other places, doesn't the New Testament describe teachers as gifts from God to the church? And aren't we always looking and praying for more teachers to meet the needs of the church? So what's James doing discouraging people from being teachers? Well, he's doing it to protect teachers and to protect the church. We'll come to protecting the church later on. Here in verse 1, the warning is given to protect the person who's considering becoming a teacher in the church. The person who's maybe being encouraged by the church to become a teacher. To those people, James doesn't say, none of you should become teachers. He says, not many of you should become teachers. Just because you can understand what the Bible's saying, and just because you can explain it clearly, just because you have a voice that's easy on the ear, having those abilities doesn't automatically mean you should become a teacher. Why? Because words matter. And a teacher's whole business is with words. The person who's skilled in using words can do damage just as easily as they can do good. Teachers can use words to mislead or manipulate the church. They can use words to mangle or misrepresent the truth. They can use words to try and get glory for themselves. They can use words to belittle others. Teachers can use words to suggest that they're better than everyone else, that they're the man of God who's on a higher level than their audience. Or teachers can use words to present themselves as one of the lads, someone who glories in being a bit of a rogue. Teachers can be so concerned to fit in with their audience that they talk about sin with a bit of a nod and a wink. 
There are so many ways teachers can fail and cause harm with their words. And those who do damage with their words will have to account for that damage, James says. Jesus said, from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. If you have been entrusted with the ability and the responsibility to teach, bear in mind how significant that responsibility is. And bear in mind your own weakness. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. In other words, yes, it is God's goal for us to be perfect like Jesus. James told us that in chapter 1. And one day, God will bring all his people to that blessed perfection but we ain't there yet. None of us are. And so those who are considering being teachers, you need to honestly confront the fact of your weakness and imperfection. Having the ability to teach does not cancel out the fact that you're imperfect in your words as well as in everything else. And being imperfect in your words is a problem because teaching is all about words and God will hold you to account for your words. Now, none of this means you shouldn't be a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or a teacher at Discoverers 116 or Little Miracles. The church needs teachers in all of those ministries. And if you quit because of this sermon, the other elders will chase me down the street. This doesn't mean you should give up teaching or refuse to get involved in teaching. But maybe it means you need to take the solemn responsibility of teaching a bit more seriously. Maybe it means you need to take the preparation of your material a bit more seriously. Maybe it means you need to take the preparation of your heart a bit more seriously. Don't just rely on your ability to speak in front of people. That alone doesn't make you a good and helpful teacher. Better not to teach than to do it with a cocky, self-confident attitude. or with a badly prepared message that could lead people astray. And this certainly means all of us need to be praying for those who teach in the church. Whatever the context of that teaching, we need to be praying for those who teach little people just as much as those who teach big people. We need to pray because every teacher is imperfect. And at the same time, every teacher has a fearful responsibility before God for their teaching. So every teacher needs your regular, fervent intercession on their behalf. Seriously. Please, please pray for all of us imperfect, 
stumbling teachers. That we wouldn't use words in a way that causes us to fall under judgment because of our words. For what we teach in the pulpit or what we teach in Sunday school or on a Thursday morning or a Friday evening. Pray for teachers and realize too whether or not you have the responsibility of standing up and teaching in an official way, you are still speaking between 10 to 20,000 words every single day. And isn't it true that many of those words just tumble thoughtlessly out of our mouths? And yet those thoughtless words have immense power. In verses 3 to 5, James gives two illustrations of that immense power. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Meaning, the tongue can legitimately boast of having significant effects. Effects that are out of all proportion to its small size. Just like a tiny piece of metal in the mouth can control the whole horse, and a comparatively tiny piece of metal below the waterline can control the whole boat, so this tiny muscle in our mouths can set the whole direction for our lives. And it can impact the lives of others in hugely significant ways. Just think for a moment how the words of other people have impacted your own life. Can you think of an instance where a few simple words of encouragement lifted you? Maybe those words of encouragement even gave you the confidence to move forward in a new direction or face a new challenge in your life. On the other hand, maybe you have painful memories of harsh, cutting words from someone else that devastated you. Maybe those words destroyed your confidence. Maybe they, le they led you to give up on something in your life. Maybe those words are still eating away at you this morning. We probably don't need convincing that words are incredibly powerful. We know how the words of others can impact us. But what we might need to consider a bit more is how our own words impact others in powerful ways. Because the reality is we can agree about the effects that words have had on us, while at the same time being careless about the effects our own words have on others. As inconsistent as that is, it's very possible to live that way. I've known people who hold lifelong grudges against someone else for the painful words that person has said to them, 
But those wounded people don't seem to notice how their own words regularly wound others. Maybe our response to this is to say, okay, I get it, I understand words are powerful, but since they're powerful for doing good as well as doing harm, doesn't it all even out in the end? Over the course, won't our good, helpful words balance out our bad, harmful ones? Well, that's what we might think, but James says, actually, that's not true. He tells us there is a bias in our words, just like one of those lawn bowling balls. Our words tend to go in a certain direction. Having told us our words are incredibly powerful, now James says our words tend to be destructive. They are not inevitably destructive, but they tend to be destructive. Their bias is towards destructiveness. Look at the middle of verse 5. James has just given us two neutral illustrations of the tongue. He's likened it to a bit in a horse's mouth and a rudder on a ship. But his next illustration is not neutral at all. He says, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Why don't you tell us what you really think, James? Don't tiptoe around the issue. Is James being over the top here? Not at all. Someone has said the tongue has a capacity for evil like nothing else. Isn't that true? Our fists can do a certain amount of damage, but our words can do just about endless damage. And there are endless possibilities for the tongue to cause damage. Listen to how Sam Albury explains it. It says, the tongue is the one muscle of our bodies that we do not fail to exercise thoroughly. It gets a constant workout. Fire spreads everywhere. Sparks are constantly flying out of our mouths, spraying in every direction. A bit of innuendo, a harsh word to our parents or our spouse or an employee, sniping to take someone down, some gossip juicily passed on, a dash of exaggeration as we recount something to others. It can all seem so harmless at the time. A spark is such a small thing after all. And yet, just a few careless words, either deliberate or accidental, and the result can be untold damage. We think of careers that have toppled, marriages that have fallen apart, conflicts that have been started, and decades of self-loathing that have been generated, all because of carelessly uttered words. In the search for weapons of mass destruction, we really only need to look in the mirror and open our mouths. 
To quote that famous English philosopher George Michael, time can never mend the careless whispers of a good friend. Or the careless emails. Or the careless texts. I've learned by painful experience that a careless Hastily sent electronic message can cause a lot of mess. Mess that can't always be tidied up easily, if it can even be tidied up at all. So, yes, our words can do great good, but they tend to be destructive. That is their natural bent. That is their built-in bias. And look why that is. Verse 6 says, The tongue is a destructive fire set on fire by hell. So there's a simple reason that we tend to pour out damaging and destructive words more than we do helpful and healing words. It's because the devil's got our tongue. Our tongues are satanic, and so our words are hellish. That is our natural state. At least it's been natural for us since Genesis chapter 3, when humanity listened to the snake's hellish words and chose to disobey God's heavenly words. The Bible says ever since humanity has not been free, We've been under the power of Satan. And Satan isn't stupid. Not when it comes to the best way of wrecking havoc anyway. He knows the incredible power of our words. And so he makes it a priority to use our words for destruction. And that's why words of criticism seem to slide so easily out of our mouths while we seem to choke on words that build others up or that acknowledge our own wrong. As that other English philosopher Sir Elton John said, sorry seems to be the hardest word. Sir Elton may not know why it's the hardest word, but James does. It's because the devil's got our tongue. So if you are not a Christian, here's what you mustn't do in response to this sermon. You mustn't think, you know, there's definitely something to this teaching about the tongue. I know how the words of others have been powerful in my life, and so I really do need to be more serious about how my words impact others. I really need to do better this year. I really need to make more effort to use my words well. I need to knuckle down and get my tongue under control. If you're not a Christian, that might feel like the obvious way to respond to this sermon, but it's completely the wrong response. And the reason it's completely wrong is because you have no hope of getting your tongue under control. Not in any genuine, sustained way. Look at verse 7. 
all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. For me, one of the highlights of our trip to the U.S. last summer was a tiger show we went to when we visited a theme park. Now, my head and my stomach can't handle roller coasters anymore, so I have to find other things to do, like performing animal shows. So we sat and we watched as this man entered a cage with several fully grown tigers. They were licking his arm as he talked to us. They rolled over so he could rub their bellies. And at any moment, they could have killed the guy with one swipe of their paw. That would really have ruined the show. But it didn't happen. It amazes me how humans can work with those killer animals. We have incredible ability to tame all sorts of animals. And we can widen this out to think about our ability to tame all sorts of natural resources as well. Think about hydropower and solar power. We can tame all sorts of diseases. But, James says, that just makes our lack of ability all the more stark when it comes to taming our own tongues. We can teach our dog to dance for a treat. We can tame many kinds of cancer. But we can't seem to stop our own mouth from spitting out that cutting comment to our spouse or our parents or our children or our colleague. And so we might be thinking at this point, well, my goodness, we should all take a vow of silence and never open our mouths again. But that's not the way forward. Yes, some of us ought to consider speaking a little bit less. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke about the ministry of holding our tongue. Maybe some of us need to develop our ministry in that area. But absolute silence is not possible, and nor is it the biblical ideal. Our tongues were intended to be used for good. God didn't give them to us just for licking ice cream. They were intended to be used for good, but the point is we cannot tame them. We can't bring them in line. But there's someone who can. In verse 8, James doesn't say no one can tame the tongue. He says no human being can do it. The one who can do it is God. And that's why if you are not a Christian, truly getting your tongue under control is a non-starter for you. Only supernatural power can tame the tongue. Only God can can turn your tongue from a servant of hell to a servant of heaven. Taming the, the tongue starts then with trusting in Jesus. 
It starts when we admit our need and we run to Jesus for salvation and new life. When we do that, James has told us we are given new birth through the word of truth about Jesus. We have that word planted in us. Then there's hope for taming our tongue. So if you recognize the harm your tongue does, if you're being convicted by your conscience about that, ask Jesus to save you and cleanse you. Lay your life out before him. Ask him to take control of it, and he will. Then there's hope for taming your tongue. Taming the tongue is one of the works that true faith produces in God's people. And as every single Christian soon learns, taming your tongue is not like the flick of a switch. It's a lifelong work. John Calvin said our Christian life is one long campaign. It's a fight. And taming the tongue is part of that lifelong fight. We all know that old, hellish ways of using our tongue die hard. New, heavenly ways come very slowly, it seems. Even after we've come to Christ, our mouth is still prone to stay open long after we ought to have shut it. And so, James says, the way forward is not so much to focus on our tongues and the words they produce. The way forward is to pay attention to the part of us that supplies words to our tongue. Because our tongue is just a muscle in our mouth. It doesn't come up with the things we say. The tongue just says what it's told to say. It's our heart that tells the tongue what to say. Jesus said, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. He said, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And here in our passage, that is James's message in verses 9 to 12. Our words reveal the state of our heart. Just look at those last verses again. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Our tongues reveal what's going on in our heart. Just as a fresh water spring doesn't produce salt water, so a heart that is close to God and in tune with Him won't produce words of bitterness and destruction. Not consistently, anyway. The more our hearts are in tune with God, the less bitter destruction is going to come from our tongues. So, of course, James's illustration here is not exact. No illustration ever is exact. It's a very helpful illustration, but it's not exact. Because when it comes to springs and trees, 
A fresh water spring produces only fresh water. Fig trees only produce figs. Grapevines only produce grapes. But we know that a heart made new through faith in Christ can still produce bitterness and destruction. James knows that. That's why he warned teachers back in verse 1. James knows very well that people with new hearts can still produce hellish words. But still, the illustration is helpful in showing us that only a new heart can produce words that serve heaven. New hearts are still capable of destructive words, but only new hearts can bring words of help and healing from God. So then the challenge of these verses for Christians is, given that you have a new heart, what do your words reveal about the current health of that new heart? I don't just mean what do the most recent words out of your mouth say about the state of your heart. Your most recent words were probably the words of the praise song that we sang a few minutes ago. Or they might have been a bunch of angry words on the way to church. But when we ask ourselves, what do my words reveal about the state of my heart? Think of it this way. If someone spent time listening to you talk for a period of weeks or months, what would they learn during that time about your heart? Would your words reveal a person who's disillusioned with life and raging at the world? Raging either at the government or those who disagree with the government? Is the main topic of your speech the stupidity of others? Or if you're a more polite person, the lack of common sense in others? At the moment, when people have such different views about COVID and how to handle it, isn't there more opportunity than ever for our words to spark fires and reveal angry hearts? Are you an expert in expounding on all the wrongs done to you by others? Do you use your words to dissect and ruminate and their offenses against you? Or would you, your words reveal a person who uses their words to manipulate others? Always angling to get what you want out of people? More concerned that others listen to you than that you listen to them? Would your words or would my words reveal that we worship the idol of our own wisdom? And we don't mind cutting down to size those who don't share our great wisdom. Now don't misunderstand the point here. We are called in Scripture to share our burdens and concerns with others. James will get to that later in the letter. 
And so, of course, we will talk about our opinions, we will talk about the wrongs done to us, and we will all have outbursts. It would be silly to deny that. But here's the point. We all have main tracks that our words follow. So let's all ask ourselves, what do the main tracks of my words over time reveal about the state of my heart? Do the patterns of my words reveal a heart that's pursuing God? A heart that's listening carefully to his word and beginning to take on the priorities of his word so that in little ways my own words begin to express the character of God? Do my words reveal a heart that is slowly in little ways being conformed to the image of his son Jesus? Words matter. They are incredibly powerful for good or evil. And don't we all have to agree, none of us can claim we're never at fault in what we say. So let's all of us make this a focus of our prayers. Let's make it a focus of our prayers every single morning that throughout the day ahead, our words would reveal a heart that's in tune with God. That our tongue would increasingly be set free from its service to hell and used in the service of heaven. I realize it's overwhelming for us to think of the big change that's needed in our words. So let's focus instead on daily change. Let's see each little conversation of the day as a new opportunity to use our words well. And when we fail with our words, let's come quickly back to God to be renewed by the pure spring of his love and mercy. And the words of grace that he speaks to us in his word. Our final song is a prayer. So let's use this to respond to God's word personally and together. The song is, Oh, for a heart to praise my God.
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. <laughs>